This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Rock Jumper Worldwide Birding Adventures, specializing in top quality bird watching tours with experienced professional guides to over a hundred destinations around the world. The American Birding Association is proud to join Rock Jumper to offer an ABA tour to Tanzania in 2018. Join us for hundreds of birds, iconic mammals, and amazing culture and scenery. For more information, see rockjumper.com or events.aba.org. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I hope that you had a great Thanksgiving if you are listening in the U.S., if you are one of our friends from Canada, I hope you had a great regular Thursday. Uh, this is the only major U.S. holiday that involves a bird, even if that involvement is primarily gastronomical as opposed to ornithological. Uh, I also think it's probably the biggest week of the year for bird photography, so long as those photography is of wild turkey. A lot of websites, a lot of newspapers have pictures of wild turkey up there. Uh, you know, I guess we'll take what we can get. I have some items of ABA-related news to pass on. First thing this week, leading off the official ABA checklist, version 8 now, is out, and it is a big deal for a couple important reasons. The first being that this is the list that includes Hawaiian birds. So about one year after the official vote to include Hawaii in the ABA area, we have a checklist that reflects that change. Thanks to Peter Pyle and the rest of the volunteer ABA checklist committee, it should go without saying that this was a huge job going through the status of Hawaiian birds, especially those established exotics in Hawaii, and determining which are in and which are as yet out. I'll have a link to the new checklist in the show notes. It's, I gotta say, it's pretty wild scrolling through it and seeing the names of those honeycreepers and other Hawaiian native birds. Uh, the honeycreepers, of course, get the get the most attention, but there are endemic representatives from many families in Hawaii. Uh, I, for one, am looking forward in the upcoming months to, to becoming more familiar with them. One minor, and, and I want to stress minor disappointment with this huge new edition was that you know, I was eagerly counting down to ABA 1000 uh, prior to adding Hawaiian birds to the ABA checklist. The checklist was was in the 990s or thereabouts. I was looking forward to seeing which vagrant was going to be the one that that is the milestone bird that pushes us into four digits. Uh, I had my money on Cattle Tyrant. Anyway, Hawaii pushed that list up to just over 1100 now, so... ABA 1000, no longer a thing. Certainly not going to be Cattle Tyrant. I suppose if I felt really motivated, I would go back and try and figure out what was the ABA 1000, uh, but uh, I have not taken the time. I probably won't now. No need. Uh, in addition to the inclusion of Hawaii, the checklist committee also did a complete overhaul of the ABA rarity codes. Uh, that was a long overdue project. If you're not familiar with those codes, uh, we assign a, a number to every species that is sort of a, a shorthand designation of how rare that bird is uh, in the ABA area, which is now US and Canada plus St. Pierre et Miquelon. Uh, ones and twos are breeding birds. Five is very, very rare. There were some Good changes there. Uh, some birds that needed to be updated. Kalima warbler, for one, went from a one to a three, probably more representative of how difficult that bird is to find. Uh, Tomalipus crow is a four now, though that was before they started showing up again in South Texas. Uh, I was a little disappointed to see pink-footed and barnacle goose remain fours. I think they, they probably should be threes. Uh, wood sandpiper is also probably too low at a two. That Species has bred in Alaska, but not recently and not often. And it, it still seems weird to me that thick-billed parrot is a six. They are 
extirpated from the ABA area, but they, they are not extinct. They're still down in Mexico and conceivably could occur again. Anyway, uh, I, I could go into some detail on these. Uh, I can hear you dozing off. This is inside the in, inside stuff and, and ultimately doesn't really matter beyond just sort of something you can chat about with your friends. Which sort of gets me to this episode. Um, I also like to talk to to birders that I'm friendly with about bird books, and there are a few birders that are as well-versed on that as Donna Shulman. She is the chief book reviewer for the website 10,000 Birds and a lover of bird books, as many of us are. Donna and I made a list of our favorite bird books from 2017, and we are going to share those with you. So get your holiday list ready. We might have some additions for you. And all that will be after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of November 2017. The last part of November isn't quite the vagrant rich period that the first part was, but there are still some interesting birds to report. We'll start in California, where a band-rumped storm petrel was captured in a mist net on southeast Farallon Island off San Francisco. That mist net was set up for burrowing owls, by the way. This represents a first record for California and prompts the question, where did this bird come from? Bandrup storm petrels are regular in the Gulf Stream and the Atlantic Ocean. Those birds come from a couple different populations that nest on islands in the eastern Atlantic. It's extremely unlikely that this bird came from there, uh, but there are also birds that breed in the Galapagos and in Hawaii. The former, particularly interesting given the records of blue-footed booby, Nazca booby, and especially the swallow-tailed gull that was in Washington earlier this year. But also on the West Coast, a Eurasian skylark spent a little time in Lincoln County, Oregon, where it was a state first. There was also a bird that same week in Washington, which suggests a pattern. British Columbia would also be in the path of vagrant skylarks, but they have an introduced population on Vancouver Island that makes picking out apparent naturally occurring birds a bit more difficult. Another interesting first record, a common eider, was found in Davidson County, Tennessee. Common eider is pretty much an exclusively coastal species, so one in the middle of the continent away from the Great Lakes is really weird. Not a first record, but indicative of a really cool trend we've seen in the second half of the year. A fork-tailed flycatcher was seen near Ocean City, Maryland. There have been more than a dozen fork-tailed flycatchers in the ABA area since July, most of them in the eastern part of the continent, though one was in California as well. This is just a small part of the whole rarity landscape in the ABA area for the period. For a more complete look, check out the ABA blog, blog.aba.org, every Friday morning. And if you like your rarities as soon as you can get them, join our ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare. The holiday season is fast approaching, and I am certain that a lot of listeners have bird books on their wish list. I know that I know that I do. 2017 added a handful of noteworthy new titles to the birding canon, and Donna Schulman is joining me here to talk about our favorites. Donna is the book reviewer for the website 10,000 Birds, a frequent contributor to the ABA's birding magazine as well. Uh, she's an academic librarian, New York native, and like so many of us, a lover of books, especially those about birding. So thank you for joining me, Donna. Happy holidays. Same to you. So what Donna and I did was to make a top five list for our favorite bird books of 2017. Uh, there was a little bit of overlap, and we'll we'll definitely get to that. But first, I wanted to ask what, what was your impression of 2017 as far as a as far as bird book publishing kind of generally is concerned? Was it was it a good year? I think it was a good year for field guides. Um, not only U.S. I mean, in the U.S., we have the National Geographic field guide to the Birds of North America, 7th edition, which we'll talk about later. But there are really good field guides coming out about 
all those wonderful places we want to visit. Uh, one of the books I almost put on the list, Chamberlain's Waiters, The Definitive Guide to Southern Africa's Shorebirds, which is technically 2016, but it really wasn't available for distribution here until 2017. So I'm putting it in 2017. Uh, Link's Publications, the publishing company that put out the Handbook of Birds of the World is, is now putting out a series of field guides. And on top of that, all of these photographic images from these books are going into this great big photographic database they're developing. So I think it points to more resources for birders, but my concern is they're not all coming from United States publishers. All right. We'll go ahead and, and kind of head into our lists. We'll put all of our lists on the in the show notes of this show so you can see them complete well, along with links to our friends at you know, Beauty of Books who, who, who have all of them in stock. So I'll start with uh, one that was about that I put as number four on my list. And you had mentioned to me that you considered putting it on yours as well. And that is the new Neotropical Companion by John, John Kreicher. And that is, was put out by, by Princeton University Press this year. I I really loved this book. I loved the original Neotropical Companion a lot. I read it for the first time before I, I made my first trip to the Neotropics to Costa Rica about 10 years ago. You know, the, the Neotropics that are such a difficult ecosystem kind of get your head around. It's so complex. And uh, John does such an amazing job kind of distilling that into something that is really uh, approachable. And so I didn't really know how they could have improved on that original one. And I guess the answer is essentially more images, which makes for a great book. It's certainly not as small. It's certainly not the sort of thing that you can throw in your bag like you did with the first one, like I did with the first one. Uh, but it's a really spectacular, spectacular book, I think. What did, what did you think about this one? Um, I was really impressed. And I actually did really not know much about it beforehand. I, I find when I go to the Neotropics, I prepare for the birds and then I, I get there and it's very hard to understand what you're observing if, if you don't understand that habitat. I believe, now this book came out in the beginning of 2017, but I believe he rewrote quite a lot of it. So it's more than the photos. And as this book has gone through different iterations it has expanded its geographic focus. This is the second edition revised, but there really have been several editions that he's put out. Um, and it's expanded from, I believe, the Caribbean more towards all of South America. So what I really like about it is the previous edition he wrote with two objects in mind. One was for naturalists and birders, and the other was as a textbook. Yeah, and you can certainly see that in the book itself. Right, right, right. Um, but since that, he has written a textbook textbook, so he was free here to be as colloquial as, as he wants. So it, the writing is very engaging, you don't need a graduate degree to read it, even though the topics are very sophisticated in terms of biology and biodiversity. The next book, this was one that was on your list, is one that I, I didn't have on my list. I haven't seen it yet. But you mentioned uh, Richard Crosley's new ID guide to, to waterfowl. Uh, what did you like about this guide? 
I don't know if everyone out there knows what a Crossley guide looks like. So I think that's important to say is it is a plate or two pages of one plate, which lays out diverse images of the bird in different positions. So you'll have at least 20 images of a bird on a plate if it's a two-page plate. And on top of that, it's against a habitat. So it's very different from a field guide where you'll have a couple of images against a white background. This is the fourth book Richard Crosley has put out. And I think here he's really hit the perfect place for this kind of guide because water, it's waterfowl. So it's swans, geese, ducks, a very definitive group of birds. And it's a group of birds where you really don't have a definitive guide for North America. Yeah, absolutely. So it fills a niche in, in our uh, bookshelves. When the first Crosley ID guide came out a few years ago, I remember, I remember being, you know, pretty ambivalent about it. I, I think Crosley deserves a lot of credit for coming up with kind of this novel way of putting birds in a, in a guide. But I, I wasn't a huge fan, largely because I thought that some of the, especially some of the the forest birds, the, the field of view really bugged me. So like there would be like a, a sharp image of a bird in a sharp image of the habitat. It wasn't visually, it didn't work for me visually with you know, with, with these new guides that he's come out with, uh, the Raptor Guide, and in particular, this, this Waterfall Guide, it sounds like, based on the plates that I, that you put on your review at 10,000 Birds, it really works for that. It works well for these sort of flocking, open country birds. Yeah, I mean, it's great that he's he's taken this this novel approach and, and married it to groups of birds that it works really well for. And one other factor... For this guide and the raptor guide, because it was a relatively small amount of birds, the guide is in two parts. And the second part, which here, he has two co-authors we should mention, Paul Basic and Jesse Barry. The second part is written species accounts, which are quite encyclopedic in nature, which the librarian in me really loved. <laughs> so I, I know you, you haven't seen it. But it's, it reminds me of the handbooks that have come out to give us more information about birds than we have in our field guides. Crosley does emphasize that this is not a field guide. It is an identification guide, which I don't know if that's maybe being glib. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, people are going to use it as a field guide. For the most part. But I think people need to remember that it's also a resource for this expanded information. And each of these descriptions has a section on similar species, which I think can be very useful for certain duck genres. And it, it is really surprising to me that the ducks have not been treated in this fashion in North America. Ducks are one of the few groups of birds where there's a lot of overlap between birders and, and non-birders. You know, ducks grab your eye. People like to feed ducks at parks. There's a huge subset of hunters uh, that may use this guide as well. Kudos to Richard for, for finding, that, finding that niche. Yes. Yes. We, sh we should add that in this, these written species accounts, there is a section on hunting, uh, which uh, may spark 
feelings from some of the people listening to this podcast. I, I talked to Richard about the book, and he just very strongly feels like that hunt, hunters and waterfowl groups like Ducks Unlimited are our natural allies for conservation of wetlands. Yeah, I don't know that there are that many, you know, nice comprehensive reference guides to field identification of ducks for hunters. And, you know, there's certainly a group that, that would need that as well as birders do. So uh, I'll move on to the, to the next book, which was one that was on my list, but not on your list. Um, the Australian Bird Guide put out by Princeton University Press. Uh-huh. I thought this was a, a spectacular book. Uh, you, you mentioned that this was a very good year for, for field guides that were not to North America to these kind of exotic places. And there are few places as exotic as Australia. I think a lot of North American birders would love to go there. And there's so many unique endemic species there. The Australian Bird Guide really does a phenomenal job treating those birds. I made a, I made a joke on um, Twitter when it came out that, you know, the UK colonized the United States and Australia. And now with our field guys, they've sort of colonized our, <laughs> it's, it may not be a very good joke, but um, I, I'm referring of course to Birds of Europe, the Collins Field Guide to Birds of Europe, which is considered by many, myself included, as sort of the standard field guide. And um, both the Australian Bird Guide and the National Geographic guide that we'll talk about in a little bit um, have really incorporated a lot of Collins aspects in it. And I think that they're the better for it. Um, also, the illustrations in the Australian Bird Guide are, are really spectacular, particularly the pelagic species, which is a you know particular favorite See, of mine. See, that's a section I don't look at since I get terribly seasick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, this is a stunning book. I love the artwork, and I also really like that they used a number of artists. I think there were three major artists, but each artist focused on a specific family. So there's a cohesiveness to the drawing for that family, which you don't get for some other field guides. <laughs> yeah, which we may talk about in a, in a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're a fan of field guides, I, I like to collect field guides from a lot of different places. And I had a couple Australia field guides, um, the Simpson and Day one put out by Princeton some time ago, but this one is blows them out of the water. It's really, really just a, a great field guide for perusing through, as some people like to do. I'll move on to the top two books. Now, we had these alternate. My, my number two was your number one and vice versa. Uh, but I think we both agree that these are probably the two most influential Bird books for North American birders, I should say, to come out in 2017. And I'll start with uh, the one that was uh, number two for you, number one for me. That was uh, Nathan Peeplow's Field Guide to Bird Sounds of Eastern North America. Um, I thought this was a really great novel guide to, to this kind of underappreciated aspect of bird identification. I think he did a really spectacular job kind of explaining, setting sort of this vocabulary that birders can use to describe songs, bird vocalizations, which I think has been a real blind spot for a lot of lot of field guides. And I think as far as novelty is concerned, as far as use is concerned, um, that's why it was my number one. Uh, what did you like about, about people as field guide or what you didn't like? I thought that approaching birds from using bird sound as the primary uh, educational identification and organizing focus was incredibly revolutionary. A lot of experienced birders go around saying they bird by ear, but we still tend to use the field guides using the visual images. 
I was just really in awe, as you said, by all of the work that went into presenting the complexity of every North American species. Well, Eastern North American. I'm sorry, Eastern. Yes, Eastern. Yes. Yeah. When is the Western coming out, Mr. Peeple? I don't know. You know, when I talked to him, he said that it was, uh, he's working on it now. So, you know, maybe... 2018, 2019. I don't know. I don't know how long it takes for those things to get produced. Quite a while, I would imagine. Is, there's clearly a lot of work involved. Yes. Yeah, he had to invent a whole new category uh, to describe sound. And for me, I, I have a lot of problems hearing and identifying by sound. So this is something I really should be studying every night. I, I think it's not just for field identification. I, I think it's it's like the Crosley Guide and the new Neotropical Companion. These are birds we should have by our bedside in our bathroom and just just studying. Yeah, and, and he deserves a ton of credit for what he did. And, he, and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt deserves a ton of credit for taking this kind of crazy idea and, and making such a useful book out of it. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's important in this podcast that we credit uh, publishers like Houghton Mifflin and Princeton University Press the U.S. publishers who are continuing to publish our bird books. I think it must be difficult to justify publishing anything in print these days. Yeah. We're going to move on to the next one, which was your number one, my number two. I think a lot of birders are very excited about the publication of this. It was the new National Geographic Field Guide to the Birds of North America. It is now in its seventh edition. This is John Dunn and Jonathan Alderfer's their baby for lack of a better word, uh, they've been improving on this guide every time a new edition comes mm -hmm. out. Uh, and this one, just like we said with the sixth edition, this is the best one yet. <laughs> it's got more birds in it. You know, the illustrations are more cohesive. I think they try and put similar illustrations on the same pages so you can compare them better. I think that's always been one of my sticking points for that guide, kind of the inconsistency of the illustrations. But you know, there are people who are National Geographic people and people who are Sibley mm. people. And for a long time, I was sort of a more Sibley person. But all of the information that is going in to these new National Geographic guides, I'm, I've sort of switched over. I still think Sibley, obviously, fantastic field guide. And you can't go wrong with either one you go with. But um, if I were to suggest a single field guide, uh, which obviously no one should have just one field guide, but if I were to suggest a single field guide, for Birds of North America, I'd probably go with this National Geographic 7th edition. It's, it's hard not to, especially if you're interested in uh, subspecies, uh, rarities, and it's compact. I, I'm sitting here with yeah. the Sibley 2nd edition and National Ge Geographic in front of me, and if I'm going to grab a book to run out to look at a bird, it probably would be the Nat Geo because the Sibley second edition is, is just a T-O-M-E, a, a tome. <laughs> yeah. I, I find myself always torn. I think they both are incredibly great field guides and we North American birders are really lucky to have this choice. There's one aspect of the National Geographic Guide that has always kind of confused me and not in a, like a really bad sort of way, but sort of in a funny sort of way. They have put all the the very rare birds in that in the back. There's a section, right. there's, there's an appendix in the back that shows all of the birds for which there are maybe, I you know, fewer than five. But that's just it. There's no real standard for what birds are there and what birds are in the main body. Uh, Zeno's petrel 
for instance, one record, North American record, it made it in the main body, but something that has a handful of records for Western Alaska is in the back. I don't understand how they made that decision, <laughs> which is, it's more, it's not anything that's, you, you know, you need because those are birds that you're not going to encounter typically. But I, so I always thought that was kind of funny how they make that decision between what goes in the main body and what goes in the appendix. <laughs> uh, John Dunn touches on that in an interview he did for, I think it was Birdwatching Magazine, where he says the standard for the back of the book birds was, I think it was like three or less appearances in the U.S. However, then there were cases where they put the bird in the main book for purposes of comparison. Um, oh, okay. Well, that does make sense. Xenos is very similar to Feo's petrol, right. among other things. So I, I think, I find this with all of the field guides I look at. Uh, they do set up criteria, and I really, really like it when they talk about this in the introduction, which they don't always do. And then there are just the exceptions. Um, it's in taxonomic order, except when we want to compare to similar looking birds on and on and on. I'm perfectly okay with that, you know, not being a hard and fast thing. I think that there are some considerations that need to be made for ease of use uh, for comparing those birds that are similar. So, you know, that's not an issue. And um, a lot of bird, a lot of field guides, you know, understand this and make those accommodations and, and Nat Geo is no different there. I, I had the absolute pleasure of going to Cuba with John Dunn and, and I kept on sort of prodding him to talk about the book, which had not come out yet. <laughs> so I think one of the things I got out of those conversations was how much he worked with the artists on getting the images correct which you really don't know when you look at it. So just so much work went into this. And the treatment of rarities, I know that's not a concern for most birders, but we had a corn crake here. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. And guess where, guess where I, you know, I just knew automatically which book would describe corn crake. Yeah. As well as yep. common green shanks. And there I'm done with my boasting for the podcast. <laughs> I would suggest if a birder has the sixth edition of National Geographic, I, I don't know if they necessarily need the seventh edition, but if your National Geographic, if the guide that you have is fifth edition or before, I mean, the seventh edition is, it is a real step forward. And as, as I said earlier, you know, John, uh, the, the John's, continue to make every edition, every edition better. I, I would also add, though, if you are into hummingbirds, they've totally redone the images for hummingbirds here. Even if you have the sixth, you might want to get it just for the hummingbirds. It's really well-priced. It's priced at $29.99 retail, but you can get it for much less through, I always say the usual suspects, so I don't give certain companies... <laughs> Well, if you're an ABA member, if you're an ABA member, you can uh, get a discount at Beautyo Books. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of uh, sort of non-field guides, sort of narrative books that came out in 2017 as well. You mentioned a couple of them on your top 10 list. Um, if you would briefly, if you could briefly just say what you liked about, you, you mentioned uh, Richard Prum's new book and also the, the Good Birders Don't Wear White book. Okay. Um, the Evolution of Beauty... How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World in Us by Richard O. Crum is a book about 
Darwin and evolution and beauty and the way we interpret the way birds behave. The prose can be a little dense, but I, I think it's worth reading. I'll just throw in one that I had sort of as an add-on to mine, uh, Noah Stricker's Birding Without Borders, a really great narrative of a really fascinating year. And I, I interviewed Noah in the last episode, so you can get a lot of my thoughts on his book by listening to that. But yeah, it's, it's a really fun book, and, and Noah's a great writer and a good storyteller, so it's a, it's a good one as well. And uh, you also mentioned the good birders don't wear white. I, I feel like I can't always go into it because I, I actually have an essay in there, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I can I can talk about other people's essays. It's also it's a very fun book if you enjoy kind of short stories, very easy to read as well. I, I think it's also a good book for introducing new birders to this world and um, to the different types of writing they can encounter here. And also, I like that that they had two essays about museums in it. Yeah, that was great. That was great. Um, we didn't get to everything on either of our lists, but we'll put all of our lists on the in the show notes so you can check them out. Um, there's a, the short of it is there's there's a lot of really good books out there. Thanks, Donna. You can find Donna's reviews at ten thousand birds, ten thousand birds dot com. Thanks for thanks for talking bird books with me. Thanks, Nate. This was much easier than I thought it would be. <laughs> The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. The best way to support this podcast and the many other free resources the ABA provides to birders around North America and the world is to join the ABA. If you are listening to this podcast while it is still November, you are still eligible to get in a membership drawing for a pair of Steiner Wildlife XP 8x44 binoculars. These have a $2,300 value. Join, renew, or gift a membership before the calendar returns to December to get in on that. More info at aba.org slash join. Special thanks to Ed King of Reston, Virginia, Kelly Vineyard of Westerville, Ohio, George Leenberger of Roseville, California, David Rudemiller of Cincinnati, Ohio, Heidi Macy of Royersford, Pennsylvania, Diane Hoon of Lansing, Michigan, and Don and James Greenway of LJ, Georgia. Ooh. All joined and renewed their ABA membership in the last month and noted this podcast as a reason. Thanks, everybody. Welcome to the ABA, or welcome back in the case of the Greenways. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast is Jeffrey Gordon. Technical production is by John Lowry with help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook, on facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. That is not to be confused with the Association of Balkan Anthropology. If you are interested in the history of Southeastern Europe, we can't help you, but I'm pretty sure they'll be able to serve you. Look, I'll be honest, we're getting to the bottom of the barrel with these other ABAs and it's getting more difficult to find new ones. I'm going to warn you, these might be a little bit painful to listen to, but rest assured, it hurts to go Vina more. It hurts me more. Right, um, yeah, luckily I'm the Croative type. Croative <laughs> Ideas, comments, or complaints can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>